Let us pray. Father God, we come before your word this morning. Humble us, give us ears to hear. Let it change us. Let it strike us. And let it give us new hearts and eyes that can see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was on the phone with Andy yesterday, our pastoral intern, our youth minister, and we were talking a little bit about the Lord's call in his life, and I think we can kind of universally say that in Andy we see someone who has a great passion, a great love for the Lord, and yet as he continues his studies, he'd be the first to admit he doesn't yet know where it's all leading to where it's all going, where his particular call might end up being in ministry. And after I got off the phone call, I thought about my relationship with the passage we are in today because very much this passage is the passage of Scripture that God used in order to shape me. Looking at this passage afresh in a missions class taught by Dr. Stephen Childers totally changed how I looked at the idea of ministry. And so first I say that so that you might join both Bruce and I who have been praying a long time for Andy this coming year that the Lord might give him that moment which really blesses him to understand where the Lord might be calling him. But also, I say it because I know the Lord gives such moments because of this passage. You see, when I got on the plane from Las Vegas to Orlando, Florida to go to that class and several other classes, as I periodically did in my seminary program, my wife, you know, she, when I got on the plane, I was one man, and when I came back from that class... She even remarked, who are you? What happened there? Because I was almost like this Christian Gnostic when I started seminary. I felt the Lord's call over my life, but I kind of had this compartmentalized understanding of ministry. God, I don't want to be a, ever be a lead pastor. I know that. I know I won't ever want to be in kind of pastoral church ministry. I like this homeless stuff I'm doing. Maybe hospital chaplaincy. You can't have that. You can't have this. You can't have this aspect of my life. You can't have that aspect of my life. I, I was kind of living, and some of you might even know this, I had this like two kingdoms kind of philosophy of the world. That there were God's things and there were like things that were not God's. And God didn't have right over them. And this passage changed that. And I pray that this passage changes you. This passage is why, and it is exactly on the dot, 2,470 miles, I moved my family. My wife left a six-figure job in nursing. And we went from 202 Glen Falls Avenue in Henderson, Nevada to 2092 Church Road, Waxhaw, Pennsylvania. 
In one sense, I, I get that question all the time, you know, where are you from? And I say, I'm from San Diego, but I moved here from Vegas, and I don't really, do, you know, I don't go around the community going, I'm a pastor, or these sorts of things, but they go, how did you get here? And the jig is up at this point. But in one sense, I could answer that question, how did I get here? I got here because of 1 John chapter 5, most especially verse 19. That's how I got here. More on that in a moment. But before we actually get into the passages that we're going to look at today, I want to, we're looking at the very end of 1 John. And I think there's actually three verses that we need to read at the very beginning of this letter, just so that we don't understand, especially verse 18 of chapter 5. And they come from 1 John chapter 1, they're verses 8 through 10, which say the following. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The Apostle John there is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to people, and to put it in modern vernacular, pews, in the pews. He's writing to us. He's saying to us, if the believer doesn't have a worldview that understands that there is a regular struggle against sin in this life, and we can't admit that reality in confession, then we don't know the Lord. So John, at the beginning of the letter, is saying, if you have a low view of what qualifies as sin and your own struggle with sin, that low view of what is sin and what qualifies of sin probably means you don't actually know the truth. Now let's take that from the individual to the congregational. If a congregation has a low view of what it is willing to call sin, and what it says and declares is sin, if the pulpits, if the ministers have a low view, it probably does not know the truth. That's an important thing to understand right at the beginning. But, as 1 John chapter 1 Verse 9 tells us if we confess our sins, if we admit the reality, the deep struggle of sin, He is faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's not that admitting our sins can't does it's not that admitting our sins means we can't be forgiven by God. It's actually that by admitting our sin, we help display that we are of God. Are you caught in a long-term lie and you consider yourself Christian? What does this passage tell us? A Christian's way of life is called to deal with that matter. We're called to admit our sin, to confess it, and in so doing, we prove we know the truth. And so that is very important. And that's why even at the end of our sermons, we take time to both publicly and privately confess our sins. Why is that important? Because in so doing, it's a part of the true Christian faith. And modeling that in worship here this morning, we are modeling something that we should be doing outside the walls as well. 
So with that, now let's get into the passage for today. We have three we knows in this passage. We know in verse 18, we know in verse 19, and we know in verse 20. And we read it first in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What is John trying to say here? Now, one kind of idea we could do, and because there's that born language, we could run to John chapter 3, one of the most popular verses of the Bible, and kind of read over, and a lot of people do, of the passage with Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus. We could do that. I actually think there's an easier illustration to get at what John's saying here in verse 18, and that's this. Who are the two disciples that are highlighted as uniquely betraying Christ on that final night that he lived his mortal life? Who are the two disciples? Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter. And with Judas's experience, Judas's experience was he was in the upper room. And Jesus said, basically, go do what you're going to do. Go do what you're going to do. And actually, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that at that moment, Satan entered into Judas. He actually, Satan possessed the body of Judas. And at that point, Judas's life was just in a free-for-all spiral. It was allowed to get to the point where not only did he betray the Son of God, not only did he commit the most heinous act of sin in possibly recorded history, such a gross betrayal, but it spiraled to the point where ultimately he even ended up taking his own life. The sin was allowed to get to the point that it got so out of hand because he was of his father, and his father was the devil. And that's why he could be possessed. That's why he could be blood astray. That's why he could his standing in the presence of Christ because he never was Christ. Whereas in Peter, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to betray me. But don't worry. Don't worry, I prayed for you. The devil would have sifted you like wheat, Peter. He'd have taken you out. No, he would have taken you out. No problem. But I've prayed for you. And by the way, John in his gospel in the high priestly prayer in chapter seventeen makes clear that Jesus has prayed for all those who are His, all those who believe upon Him. He's prayed for us so that the devil would not sift us like wheat. And so. What John's getting at here is actually that we as a believer, if we're a spirit-born believer, if we're born from above, if we have the Spirit of Christ in us, we can never be lost to Satan. We can never be handed over. While there are like little denominations that will occasionally say, oh yeah, you can have demon possession as a believer, don't believe it because it's not what Scripture says. The believer is always protected. You know, James talks about in his letter that at times we can be tempted by evil, we can be tempted by Satan, we can be tempted by the demonic. But he also makes clear, resist 
And the devil, you know, he's an impatient devil. He'll flee from you. And so if you're struggling in sin for prolonged periods of time and with types of sin, it's not that the devil made me do it. Autry said that as a baby all the time. I don't know where she got it. I didn't teach her, but when she was like three years old, I think the devil made me do it, Daddy. No, the devil didn't make you do it. It was cute, though. It sounded cute, but it was heresy. You're good at sinning all on your own. You're not resisting the temptation to sin. That's the idea here. If you're the Lord's, you're always the Lord's, so don't worry. And that's good news because in verse 19, he's about to tell us something that is quite overwhelming. Now I have to catch up my notes, Nancy, as you were just talking about this morning. <laughs> and so, once you have a hold of the fact that if you're Jesus's, you can never be lost to Satan, then you're ready to hear the verse that probably most changed my life outside of the verses God used in Romans chapter 8 to bring me to salvation. I could make 10 sermons on this verse. You are so lucky. When I first wrote this sermon, it was over 70 minutes long in length. I chopped it with an axe. But I'm going to skim over the surface of the implications of verse 19 today. We know that we are from God. That goes without saying. We're born into his family. We're part of a different family. God protects his family. We are from God. And then there's this second half. And the whole world. Let me repeat that. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world world lies under the power of the evil one. Now, let's just evaluate some things right off the bat here. Does John write this before the cross or after the cross? After the resurrection? After Easter Sunday? Which does he do it? When does he write this? It's after. It's after. The Apostle John said 2,000 years ago, as he looked at the world, after the resurrection of Christ that the entire world is under the power of the evil one. Let's quickly grab a hold of that idea. And this is one of those words, eschatologically. Thinking about end times realities. A lot of American Christians, and you can get very popular in ministry if you'll do this, will at times flippantly say things like, oh, things are so awful. Things have never been this bad in the world. There's no hope. The end must be happening any second now. If the whole world 2,000 years ago was under the power of Satan, can it be any worse off today? 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John, after the cross of Christ, said the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That was the state of things 2,000 years ago. But maybe, you've deci- maybe you're thinking, Kevin's taking this out of context. John's just exaggerating. When Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for what soon was to come in John chapters 14, 
before his death? Do you know what Jesus, the Son of God, said, who he said the ruler of the world was to his disciples? He said it was Satan. Jesus said Satan ruled the world. And this shouldn't be all that surprising because what happened in the temptation in the wilderness? Who offered Jesus all power over the world? Satan. Satan had a power. And maybe you think this is just, I don't know, I can't grab a hold of what you're trying to say here. But you've actually been saying this your entire life as soon as you learn the Lord's Prayer. What do we say about the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer? What did we just sing about the Lord's Prayer? About the kingdom? What do we say? Thy kingdom come. Whose kingdom exists today? If we're praying and we're told to pray in this period of time for Christ's kingdom to come into the earth, whose kingdom's here today? It's Satan's kingdom. You're actually, if you don't believe that the world, the power of the world is under the power of the evil, and you should stop saying the Lord's Prayer. Because you're acknowledging there is a power over this world that is wicked, that is evil, and that needs to be replaced. But more than that, this is one of the reasons there are certain eschatological views I can't entertain. Mainly the ones that get so caught up in caring about today's headlines rather than seeking a greater biblical context as to why they believe what is going on. Let me further unpack that. If I were to believe the world has had no improvement in 2,000 years, that the work of the Spirit in the world hasn't been working and chipping away at making things better in certain ways, in one sense, I'm basically saying that the Lord's Prayer and what the church has been praying for for 2,000 years has been ineffective. Things like the Great Commission have had no impact. But the Great Commission is Christ's battle plan to help break down the strongholds of Satan in this world. And so I don't want to say that. And I don't want to take an eschatological view, a view of the end times, that basically makes it seem like, and I'm borrowing from another theologian here, but makes it seem like the end of the world is like the end of the Vietnam War. It's totally been ineffective. The work of Christ seems like it's accomplished nothing. We've lost on the battlefield, but right at the very end, Jesus swoops in and we somehow win the Vietnam. No, I believe the Lord's Prayer is being answered over the course of 2,000 years. And I believe that the work of the church is to be a bulwark of truth, a sharer of the gospel of Christ, and that in so doing, we can create communities like this one that are strongholds, that are pieces of land that say, not here, not here. We will not bow the knee to the worldly things, to the schemes of the devil, to the things that the world says are good here. Because we have a greater God. We have a heavenly King who has come into the world and has a plan for this world in order to redeem and save this world. And so I would say that 
What John is saying here at the end of 1 John, and a fuller picture of what the Scriptures show us is, is that in one sense there is this reign of Satan in the world, and yet from heaven, and you can even look at moments like the stoning of Stephen, Christ is waging an assault, a war upon the powers of hell here on earth. Jesus is deploying spirit-born believers born of a heavenly citizenship in order that he might use them and beat back the enemies of sin and evil in this world. And And so to answer the question, how did I get here from Las Vegas? I wanted to be here in large part because I fell in love with the idea of finding a plot of land in which the Spirit of God had been moving for a long period of time. I came here, and I will admit, not wanting to follow the recent patterns of American ministry where places like this one just fall into disrepair and become another cautionary tale as you drive from community to community, a church that long ago lost its hold of the gospel of truth. There are plenty of churches. There are plenty of places that have lost it. Bruce and I have sat with pastors that have advocated for books and godlessness that Hugh Hefner would have called disgusting. We have heard it from their lips, and they have congregations that are six times bigger than this one, and they have new buildings being built, and they have all sorts of money, and we're happy to brag about it, and it was disgusting. It's godless. And we've sat with other pastors who have told us, I know what the Scriptures say about things like sexuality. I know what the Scriptures say about things like abortion. But don't you realize my congregation will can me? My congregation will fire me if I were to publicly state these things and to hold these things. And so I just, you know, I just try to focus on Jesus. I just try to focus on Christ. And all the while I go, what Jesus do you know? The ruling authorities, the authorities of power hated Jesus to the point that they wanted to kill Jesus because he would not let them be. And even the best of all born people of woman, according to Jesus, John the Baptist lost his head. Why? Because he was willing to tell the power of his day, the ruling authority, what you believe in regards to sexuality is perverse and disgusting and godless. And it is not of God. It is of this world and the one who rules over this world. It is of hell itself. And I will not condone it. I will not look over it. I will not pass by. And that's what we're supposed to be as the church. Because the whole world is under the power of the evil one. And we are called to not look like the world or try to change everything so the world wants to come in because we're worldly, but we're actually supposed to be different from the world and have a different message and a different good news. And part of that good news is, yes, we are sin. We have participated in sin. We have participated in cosmic treason. And yet we have a God who has given us a salvation that is so complete and so secure that not even Satan himself 
could take it away from us. The whole world is under the power of the evil one. And so I fell in love with the idea of not being the next pastor who took over a church that started during the time of George Bush Sr., but being the pastor of a church that started when King George II was Lord of the land, worldly speaking. And no longer was I interested in safe ministry, where my wife could you know, keep pulling down six-figure salaries and I could do a little bit of ministry on the side. But this passage allowed me to see that we are called. We are called to battle against and contend against the ruler of this world, which is Satan. And I desired to be a part of this community, to have a historic community that we could say to this plot of land, not you, you're not able to have this because this place, this land, is dedicated to the name of Christ. In one sense, any faithful church and is like a Higgins boat. You know what a Higgins boat is? Some of you do. Bruce Stocking, if he was here, he'd be nodding right now. Those were the boats used at Normandy. Those were the boats used at Normandy where they got up to the shore and they dropped. And they said, the commanding officer said, go to the beachhead. Take that land. Take that place. Take it for the kingdom of Christ. That's the idea of a church community. And if it takes your life, it costs your life. So lose it. Go do it for Christ. Because all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. It's not, it's not some is the Lord's and some is the evil ones. No, He wants it all. Because he had it all at the beginning, and he wants to reestablish the having it all again. And he allows us to be a part of that. There is a book that I continue to recommend this week. I read it this week. Adam recommended it. I fell in love with it. If I could hand it to every pastor in the United States of America, I would. I'd give up a leg to do that. It's called The Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas. Buy it. Read it. If you don't like to read, it's on Audible. If you don't want to pay for it, contact me. I'll make sure you can get a hold of it. What I found makes this book so incredible is that Eric is one of those fine, he's one of the finest theologians, especially alive today when it comes to the history of Germany. And he's writing a warning letter about how the American church is showing scary parallels to the German church that was co-opted by Nazism. And I think one of the most awakening things in that book is he talks about the fact that there were roughly 18,000 congregations at the time of the rise of Nazism. 
that had some sort of creedal statement that they should have been a faithful church. Their core documents, their creedal commitments, their confessional statements, they should have said, we know the gospel, we know what we fight for, we know who we fight for, and we cannot stand for that. We cannot stand for that kind of evil. We cannot condone that kind of evil. There's no neutrality with that kind of evil. And he puts it into a sad percentage. 3,000 of the 18,000 churches, they recommitted to their commitments. They actually made even a statement, a document that said, this Nazism is godless. It's of the world. It's of Satan. It's of evil. There was an opposite 3,000 group, and they basically said, this is the way of progress. This Nietzsche idea that God is dead mixed in with like the Hitler eugenics idea, this is the way forward. This is the future of the history of mankind. And that leaves 12,000 congregations in the middle. And those are the most disgusting of the group. They decide, they knew, they knew it was wrong, but they decide, we're going to try to be neutral. We don't bother them. They don't bother us. We're going to try to be neutral. And he points out how many millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of individuals these congregational pastors had the ear of. And because they would not denounce evil, they would not clearly call evil evil, they were absolutely worthless. Absolutely worthless. The whole world is under the power of the evil one. If you will not name evil, if you do not have the courage to identify it, what are you doing? What would we be doing in such a situation? You know what following Jesus' footsteps means? It means that those who also claim to be a part of your same faith community, they might hate you. They hated Jesus. It might mean the government that rules over you, it might hate you. They hated Jesus. You know what following in the footsteps of Jesus might mean? It might mean that people make up lies and falsehoods about you. Why shouldn't they? They did about Jesus. You know what following in the footsteps of Jesus might mean? It might mean the state and those in power might want to even kill you. If you don't believe me, again, just look at the life of Jesus. And maybe you're saying at this part, well, if the world's handed out to evil and our job is to fight against that evil wherever we find it, this just seems like this just seems discouraging. This doesn't sound all that motivating. I don't really like the idea of picturing myself on a Higgins boat and watching the, the flat fall down and being asked to run and fight for the name of the Lord. And that's where verse 20 comes in. Verse 20 is a beautiful verse. Let me read it. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 
what is what what the ESV translates as we know that the Son of God has come. Maybe that might read at first like it's something in the past, but actually in the Greek, that's in the present tense. It would sort of be like me saying, oh, Jesus is here. Jesus arrived. Jesus has come into old Goshenhampen. But it's not actually just even in the present tense. It's actually in the present perfect tense. And so basically it is there to tell you the Son of God who came in the past is still here. He's still the God that abides with us. Do you hear that, Christian? The Son of God who came in the past is still here. He's with you. He's with me. He's here right now. And so let us get back to that image of the Higgins boat. Let us go back to the idea of truly fighting for the Gospel to go forth in this world. To be bold and unashamed witnesses of Him. God has given us a spot to make place here at Old Goshenop to make war against all kinds of ungodliness and sin. And so let us seize upon that opportunity. Let us respect that He has given us this place for 292 years to varying degrees of success. This church has been a Higgins boat, sending people out, fighting. And if we give up on the truth, if we surrender the truth, if we surrender ourselves to worldliness, we're at that point, we're wolves in sheep's clothing. We might still have a building. We might still have an edifice that looks like a Higgins boat, but actually all it's producing is wolves in sheep's clothing or people with no gospel that can save. And so we actually need to hold dear and hold fast to the name of Christ all its implications of what it means to be a believer in Him, to confess our sins to Him, but also receive in Him such assurance that we can never lose it. So Christ is here. The Christ who came is still here. And He still cares about this place and He cares about this flock. And our bridegroom is always true to those who are truly His bride. And that is life-changing. And if you grab a hold of this truth, And if you have the courage to apprehend it, to live by this truth, you can say goodbye to some of those things that you've told God, no, you can't have that. And you can have a greater courage because you soon learn it's not even you who's truly fighting, but it is Christ using you. And if you quiet your soul and if you resist getting too lost into the idols of this world, you might even hear, now not necessarily with audible voice, but speaking metaphorically here, as the King James, New King James puts it in Isaiah 41, verse 10, the Lord say to you, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All authority on heaven and earth is ultimately the Lord's, and therefore, then, go. Go, Christian. Go. Stop standing around in the Higgins boat. Not joining the fight. We fight for a regime change in this world. The whole world is under the power of the evil one, and yet the Lord your God is at your side. 
And he is in this fight, and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never let Satan apprehend you or take you. He so protects you. And so then have the courage to fight. Going, therefore, in his name, in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we confess that we don't always trust in your battle plan. We often murmur and complain about the state of the world. And yet you've been at work in the world for 2,000 years, and you've been doing incredible things throughout the world. And for 292 years here, you've been doing incredible things. Allow us to continue to be a faithful church, sending people out with courage, with vigor, without fear, in loving service to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.